Our scripture reading for today is in the Gospel of Luke. We've already turned to that page earlier. We'll continue, and that's page 992 if you're using the Pew Bible. I'm going to ask your indulgence because I want to read this in the version I first heard it, where, the way I learned it, and uh, it has a special resonance for me, and I think maybe for some of you as well. <coughs> Luke 2 starting at verse 8 to 14. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Father, we thank you so much that you created this vast and beautiful universe that you've chosen to place us and create us in your own image and place us in this world that you yourself described as very good. And Father, at this season, we particularly are grateful that you have brought and sent your eternal light into this world, a world that we have darkened. And we just thank you that you've sent him to us as an example of how we are to live, how we are to draw near to you, and to redeem us for our eternal hope of living in your presence forever. Father, I ask this morning that you encourage and enable Pastor Mark as he brings the message you have put upon his heart. We ask that your Holy Spirit be uh, among us and instruct us and guide us as we learn and receive what you have for us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Ron. As was mentioned earlier, our series theme or Christmas theme for this year is Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room. And this will be my offering this week and next on the topic of Joy to the World, the song we just sang. And I've asked a question. The question is on our sign outside. It says, joy to the world, colon, in every circumstance, question mark. And in my title this morning, as you see in your bulletins, I've answered the question, yes, in every circumstance. So that's where we're headed this morning, and I hope that you'll go with us all the way. If the coming of Jesus Christ brings joy to the world, as Isaac Watt wrote in the lyrics of his familiar and favorite Christmas carol that we just sang, which is, by the way, set to the music of George Frederick Handel of the Messiah fame, then why are there so many glum and glummer Christians? Now, whether to your disappointment, relief, or chagrin, I'm not going to answer that question this morning. I'm just going to leave it 
hanging out there to challenge us with the implied possibilities, which I think can also be called implications. If the coming of Jesus Christ brings joy to the world, then why are there so many glum and glummer Christians? Indeed, our text for this morning in Luke 2, in quoting the heralding angel, tells us that the arrival of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem would bring great joy for all the peoples. If true, then joy, spoken of by the heralding angel, as well as the favorite Christmas carol, must be of a unique quality and an intangible measure than most people in history have experienced, including us here this morning. What joy is there in the midst of our suffering, we might ask. And there are people suffering all over the world. Going back in time just a bit, about 550 or so years before the birth of Christ, Nehemiah, the rebuilder, wrote, moved as he was in his little but important book by the Holy Spirit, quoting here now, the joy of the Lord Yahweh is our strength. That's chapter 8 and verse 10. So why are so many Christians so weak today? And by weak, I don't mean physically or material or militarily. All those are tools and measurements of this world, by this world, though many Christians and churches seem to have forgotten that. No, what I mean is, if the joy of the Lord is our strength, as Ezra said and Nehemiah wrote, then why are we so spiritually weak, so easily turned, so easily deceived and deflated, so easily defeated? We'll look at this passage in much much greater detail next Sunday, but But during his earthly teaching ministry, Jesus is recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 15, to have said, and I'm going to quote him here, it's on 1046, page 1046, if you want to follow along, and I encourage you to do so. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide, remain, dwell in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's Jesus as recorded in John chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. In the very next chapter, John 16, Jesus speaks of his approaching death and impending departure from his disciples when he makes a very similar point about true joy. From verse 20 of chapter 16, 
John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament at his departure is what he's talking about. You will weep and lament, but the world will, will, will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being was born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, I want you to hold on to that phrase because we'll see it again in just a bit. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing of me. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. John 16, verses 20 to 24. Now granted, that seems to have been largely a promise for our still expectant future when Jesus returns from glory to make all things new, including new heavens and a new earth, and, and it is. But it's also a promise for their joy in the days immediately following Jesus' resurrection from the dead, as well as after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given to dwell in and among God's people right up until today. And the promise was given for Jesus' ascension, his return to the Father, from whose throne Jesus ever intercedes for all the saints, even us. Indeed, joy is listed in Galatians 5, behind only love as a necessary, most basic product of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives and communities of born-again Christians. This is on page 1131, if you care to follow on. Galatians chapter 5 is my second favorite chapter in the Bible. I won't mention my first favorite chapter in the Bible, Romans 8. Oh, I, I couldn't help myself. And verse 1 is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It is for freedom that Christ sets you free. Freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. Verse 22, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, hold on to that, goodness for just a second because we'll come back to that in a minute. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So whatever regime you happen to find yourself under, there is no law against these character qualities of Christ-like living and behavior. No law against love. There can't be. No love against joy. No law against joy. No law against peace. No law against patience. No law against any of these character qualities of Christ that the Holy Spirit brings to us and into us. Verse 24. And, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
If we live, meaning if we have been brought to newness of life or we've been saved by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us live by the Spirit. We're not only saved by the Spirit, we're sustained by the Spirit. Verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's Galatians 5, verses 1, 13, 16, and 17, 22 through 26. And these are all results. They are all outcomes. They are all fruit produced by the Holy Spirit in the born-again people of God, both as individuals and as communities. So why do so many confessing Christians and churches produce so little spiritual fruit? Why are we so divided against each other? Why are, why are we producing so little that the Bible defines as the transforming Christ-like character qualities of the adopted children of God and spiritualized citizens of God's present kingdom. Again, I'm not going to answer any of these questions. I'm just going to leave them out there for each of us to answer for ourselves, asking the Lord to help us. I do have a theory, though. It's a theory that might make all these promises for our present joy relevant, encouraging, and attainable to us today. Here it is. Perhaps many, perhaps even many of us have forgotten that joy is a fundamental, irrepressible, Christ-like character quality and fruit of the Holy Spirit produced only by and in the Holy Spirit that transcends all attempts at being good. And this leads to the central truth of our message for this morning, which you have printed there in the upper inside left corner of your bulletin. Look there with me. Here it is. Transforming and transcendent joy. Transforming, that is, joy that changes us, and transcendent joy, which is above anything we could attain on our own, by ourselves or for any others. Enduring, it perseveres, it doesn't end, it keeps going. And eternal joy is a fundamental, spirit-given, Christ-like characteristic of born-again Christians, born-again disciples of Jesus, as promised by the angel who heralds the coming of Jesus Christ, and peace too. That's what we'll spend the rest of our time on. Let's, let's pray for just a moment, though. Lord, as we continue, I pray that you will speak through this, your word, that you will also speak plainly and clearly through my words, by your spirit, and that we will hear plainly and clearly your word to us, as your people. And Lord, if there be anybody here not of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that that would change today also. Give us the faith to believe. Give us the faith to hope. Give us the faith to be sustained in this life as well as the next. In Jesus' name, amen. All religion... All religion has as a fundamental tenet 
except perhaps the worship of Satan and demons and something bizarre like that. We're not talking about that. All religion has a fundamental tenet that the practice of that religion will make us better, even good persons. But that is not what the Bible teaches. And Galatians 5 also lists goodness as a fruit of the Spirit. Unattainable by any other means, but the Spirit, as the Spirit brings God's word to bear on our behavior, on our conduct, on our beings, so that we might become more like Jesus and less like who we used to be. So neither love, nor joy, nor peace, nor patience, nor kindness, nor goodness, nor faithfulness, nor gentleness, nor even self-control. I know it's a self-control, but, but it's the ability to control oneself that comes from the Holy Spirit. None of these results in anything approaching or approximating the level of Christ-like character or Christ-likeness. They are not achievable or even conceivable apart from the personal presence and the powerful working of the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot become a good person on your own, and you will not. I don't care how many good things you do. Only the Holy Spirit, sent from God, can make us anything like good, and then we still have a ways to go in this life. I'm just going to ask you to hold on to that truth for, for, for a while, and we'll come back to it later. Nothing approaching or approximating Christ-like character or Christ-likeness is achievable or even conceivable apart from the personal presence and the powerful working of the Holy Spirit of God. If it's not the Spirit's work, it's not Christ's likeness. I'm going to say that one more time. If it's not the Spirit's work, it's not Christ's likeness. Now, by the time we get to our text, beginning in verse 8 of Luke 2, Jesus Christ has already entered our world in Bethlehem. And a heralding angel announces Jesus' arrival to, of all people, some shepherds herding their sheep that night on the outskirts of town. And the first thing I want us to be thinking about as we look at this passage, I also call major point of truth number one, I'm so, so glad Schwab came and said, I'm an old school guy, I do points. I have four, not three, but okay. Here it is. Number one, the physical birth of Jesus Christ into the world he created. There's a lot of theology in here that we will not be able to address. The physical birth of Jesus Christ into the world he created happens in the most humble unpredictable and unexpected place, the most humble, unpredictable, and unexpected way, and the most unpredictable and unexpected time. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. This is part of what Neil read for us earlier in the, in the service, and the two verses just before Ron got started a bit ago. And while they were there, speaking of Joseph and Mary, 
And while they were there, registering for the registration that uh, I was trying to look for another word because registered for the registration is, you know, redundant. But while they were there, the time came for her, that is Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And yet... All three, place, way, and time, had been predicted in various ways and at various times throughout the centuries before the actual arrival of Christ on our scene. And still, the the place, the way, and the time, all three were totally surprising at the time to all of the actors in the story and to us as well. But God's own prophets had been predicting all three, place, way, and time, over the centuries. Though to be fair, most of their predictions might only be recognizable in retrospect. And what I mean is we wouldn't have done any better realizing their point than those who were familiar with their, with their predictions and where they applied and to whom they applied and, and when they would come to be true. And so we're going to look with some detail into into several prophetic passages this morning from Holy Scripture, and that's because I don't want anyone to think that these are merely quaint stories that we tell ourselves for Christmas time entertainment. I also don't want us to believe that these are merely historical events that we retell at Christmas time and then apply on the backside some extra textual meaning. I mean, they are historical events for sure. They happened as they are recorded for us in the Bible, but they are much more than history. They are all fulfillments of prophecy going back at least some 1,200 years before Christ was born. Some would say longer than that, but at least that long. So let's briefly look at three passages that point to the right place, the right way, and the right time of Jesus' physical, temporal, that means in time, birth into our world. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's on page 276 if you're following along with me in our pew Bibles. 1 Samuel, and I'll race you, right? I don't, I don't have page numbers here. I'm just turning to the passages. Are you there yet? 1 Samuel 16 verses 1 through 5. This is quite remarkable and just to give you some context, um, Israel had demanded a king from God like other peoples had kings so that that king could fight for them and that king could rule over them and keep them protected and make them feel like they were well. And, well, Saul became that king and he got rejected because he didn't have the character for, to fulfill his Role and so Samuel went looking for another king, David. And this is the beginning of that story. The Lord Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. 
I will send you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So Joseph didn't just coincidentally be from and be born be from in his family. We don't know where he was born, but but he was his family wasn't coincidentally from Bethlehem. All the way back here in the choosing of David as the second king of Israel and the exemplary king for all those who would come after him until Christ arrived was all the way back there. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord Yahweh said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord Yahweh. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord Yahweh commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, saying, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord Yahweh. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. It's on page uh, 669, if my notes here are correct, in our few Bibles. Isaiah chapter 7. Oop. My pages are getting stuck. I'm behind. You've probably beaten me this time. We should bring back Bible drill. But I need better fingers. Isaiah chapter 7. So Isaiah chapter 7 is uh, one of the traditional go-to passages for Christmas time, but I want to read a little bit more than we normally hear. I want to start at verse 10. Again, the Lord Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord Yahweh, your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord Yahweh to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself, this is Adonai, the Lord himself, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now I want you to notice the timestamps here. In that day, there's the phrase I ask you to remember. In that day is a timestamp. It's, it's a time reference. So we're talking about the place, Bethlehem. We're talking about the way in the most humble of circumstances, homeless, as Neil put it. We're talking about the time in that day. Verse 18, in that day, the Lord Yahweh will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. 
Verse 20, in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. Verse 21, in that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. Verse 23, in that day, every place where there also, I'm sorry, in that place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. These are the briars and the thorns that uh, uh, Watt was talking about in Joy to the World. With bow and arrows, a man will come, come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns, and for all the hills... And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there to, for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. And no, I don't know what, what all of those references mean, except that they apply to that day, along with that place, along with that way that the Christ came. Micah chapter 2, no, chapter 5 rather, Micah chapter 5, uh, page 902. No, I'm not, I'm not cheating there. I'm not trying to get ahead of you by pausing and delaying the page reference, but I'm there yet. I'm there already. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5a is the last one on this point. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his people rather shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of the Lord Yahweh his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So yes, without a doubt, the arrival of Jesus Christ into the world happens in the most humble, unpredictable, and unexpected place, the most humble and unpredictable and unexpected way, and the most unpredictable and unexpected time only God's prophets predicted all three albeit somewhat obscurely at times number two it will be much much quicker here number two a host of angels a host of angels that's what the text says announce the physical birth of Jesus Christ the temporal arrival of the Lord of heaven and earth to a few shepherds on the outskirts of Bethlehem, verses 8, 9, and 13. And in the same region, we're in Luke chapter 2 again here, verse 8, 9, and 13. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Jump down to verse 13. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, and we'll get to what they said in just a moment, but, uh, but this, this is probably the part of the story 
that is the most vulnerable to challenges of fanciful storytelling and mythical falsehood. Except that, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is very clear that God exists. He has created all that exists today and forever. And he sends his emissaries, his angels, from time to time to bring his message and also to help human beings who are uniquely created in God's image. In almost every book of the Bible, you can find some reference to angelic messengers, angelic helpers. It is biblical and Christian not only to believe, but also to receive what angels have done. And only sometimes do we know about it. Usually angelic assistance comes unnoticed by even the most spiritual among us. But here in Luke 2, they are revealed to the shepherds and to us for a reason, to announce the birth of Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. It might seem to be a little bit of an, 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 an overdoing of it with a host of angels to lowly shepherds. It's the message that they are bringing that brings the glory of God. A host of angels announced the physical birth of Jesus Christ, the temporal arrival of the Lord of heaven and earth to a few shepherds on the outskirts of Bethlehem. There's a third thing that I think that we can benefit from seeing here in this passage, and it's this, the physical birth of Jesus Christ. God, the Son, the creator of heaven and earth, brings great joy to all the peoples of the earth. Look with me there to verses 10 and 11 of Luke 2. And the angel said to them, the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Hold on to that phrase, good news of great joy, that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the angel doesn't say it, but I'm just going to add this. It's not adding to the scripture. Just as the prophets have said. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. Any person who is uh, well acquainted with what we call the Old Testament scriptures and especially the prophetic literature would know that he's saying this is the one who has been prophesied. He has been sent. And you know that because of all of these things that have been prophesied before are now coming to be fulfilled. Page 671. Ready, go. Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. When I look back at this passage, I couldn't believe what I saw and didn't, and, and didn't remember ever having noted it before. Verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9 through verse 7. Uh, we'll, we'll read 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her, who her, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Jesus was, lived in, as, as a boy growing up in Galilee. Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles uh, is uh, the reference there. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, and on them has light shone. This is the part I never noticed before or didn't take hold of. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord Yahweh of hosts will do this. The physical birth of Jesus Christ, Son of God, God the Son, the creator of heaven and of earth, brings great joy to all the peoples of the earth with one condition. The only access point to this joy is by faith in the one who brings it. Jesus Christ. And the only means by which we receive this joy, this quality of joy, this quantity of joy, this fullness of joy is by the Holy Spirit. There is no other means. And I think that's what he's talking about when in verses 12 and 14, it's the, of Luke chapter 2, look there, back, back there and we'll be done here in a second. The prophecies being fulfilled are, are being referenced to in verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. In other words, these signs are from prophecy, and, and you will know that these are the signs. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Peace with whom he is well pleased. Question. Are you at peace with God? Are, are you at peace with others? Families, neighbors, brothers and sisters in Christ at church? This sort of peace, also a fruit of the Spirit, comes by the Holy Spirit. And the good news is Jesus has done all that was necessary to have been done for us to be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. Another way of saying that is to be at peace. And Jesus came for that very purpose. From the beginning, his coming was heralded as to bring joy, great joy to all the peoples and peace among those for whom his favor rests. 
joy to the world in every circumstance? Yes. But only by faith in him, the one who brings it, and only by means of the Holy Spirit are we able to experience this type of joy. May each of us receive our king and receive the joy that he brings. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we once again come before you and your word, and it's beyond us. All of those in that days are, are time references that, that maybe, maybe if we were better at scholarship, maybe if we were better at preaching, we would know what all those refer to and be able to put them in a row and uh, list them all and have a very compelling case to why these apply to that time and that place and that way in Bethlehem when Christ came. And yet maybe it's enough to simply recognize that they are your prophetic words pointing to that moment in time, that humble place, and that humble manner. It is a remarkable thing to think that we can think anything of ourselves when we see the way that you entered the world and the way you conducted yourself. And I was so thankful for the observation earlier that Neil made that you came to the world homeless. We, we learn elsewhere that you didn't have a place to lay your head. Help us to know how that applies to us here in our place and time, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray.